Hey, River Valley Church. I uh, just want to talk to you real quick about our guest speaker today. He's one of uh, my favorite people in the whole world. Uh, our first missionary that we supported as a church, uh, he's out there risking his life, uh, really pioneering the way and trying to be a light of the gospel uh, to those that have a, a Muslim belief. And we're trying to share Christianity with them. And Dick Brognan is out there pioneering the trail, just doing an amazing work. Um, I was going to be on vacation today and uh, wanted to be here so bad to hear him preach, so I even came back. Uh, I want you to open up your hearts. I believe he's anointed. I believe he's a man of God. He's an apostle for our age. And uh, I believe he's got something to say to you because he spent time with God. And I want you to welcome Dick Brogdon. Well, good morning. 16 years ago, this church began, and just a few months after the church began, we entered into a partnership, a fellowship with you guys, and so we were the first missionaries that this church supported, and you have been faithful to us all these years in your prayers and your giving, and we want to thank you for that. We're united because with your pastoral team, we share a common heart. We want to see Jesus exalted and glorified where he is not known. And we want to see churches planted amongst unreached people groups through teams. And this is the heart of the Live Dead initiative. I'd like you to watch a short video with me. And this will uh, explain and reveal a little bit about what's going on in the Arab world. Would you watch this video?
What does it mean to live dead? What are the claims of Christ on my life when I am his follower? What does it mean to die to my life and to my plans and to my will that I might live for the supremacy of Jesus everywhere, always, and in all things? What will it take for the church to be planted amongst Somali pirates and Libyan Arabs and Saudi princes and North Indian paupers? What will it cost us? I'd like us to look to the Word of God for answers this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 8. I'd like to read verses 27 through 29. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 29. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Today we have sung, we have worshipped, we have lifted our hands. What saves us from the hypocrisy of hollow praise? What moves us to the depths of costly and beautiful surrender? Today we live in a culture that promotes self. We indulge a Christianity that champions ease. What lifts us from the narcissism of Western spirituality and plants us in the heavenly reality of death that leads to life? What liberates us from the folly of indulgent living? What teaches us to hide behind the cross? What compels us to magnify the Christ? What empowers us to love a diminished role that Jesus rise? that Jesus be glorified, that Jesus alone is exalted in that day. Who will rescue us from these bodies of death? Who will liberate us from the chains of safety? Who will so grip our hearts that we lose our fears? Who has the power to transform these weak and broken carnal flesh into agents of life and liberty and health and justice? Who can take these tongues and make us oracles of God? Who can take the tragedies of our past and win triumphs for eternity? Who can take shame and make it glorious? Who can take folly and shine it wise? Who can take weakness and manufacture strength? Who can raise us from the death we choose and plant us indestructible, immortal? Who can take death and make it live? Who is sufficient for these things? Who but the Christ? Who but the Christ? Who but the Christ? Who indeed but the Christ? You are the Christ, says Peter. I heard you. I heard you call me from my nets. I felt you, Jesus. I felt you make me a fisher of men. I was there, Jesus. I saw you cast out the unclean spirit. You spoke with authority, and my heart burned. You raised my mother-in-law. She stood to serve. You healed the sick at the door. You are the Christ. When they broke through the roof, I heard you forgive sin. 
I saw the paralyzed get up and walk. I shook the withered hand that grew. I was in the boat when the storm turned tail. I saw legion freed from demons. I watched the pigs plunge into the sea. I saw the widows doctors could not help cry for joy. I heard Jairus sob when his daughter died. I held him up when his daughter rose. You are the Christ. You sent me out and I healed the sick. You gave me power and the demons fled. You fed the crowd and I shared their bread. Jesus, you are the Christ. I saw you walk on water. I saw you raise the dead. I saw you heal the mute. I saw the people fed. My heart inside me burns. My spirit for you yearns. You are the Lord. You are the Son of God. Jesus, you are the Christ. And Peter would one day die for Jesus. But first, he had to live with him and to love him and to be loved by him. We cannot die for Christ if we have not lived with Him. We cannot dream of changing the world if our spirits have not been yanked inside out by Jesus Himself. You cannot live dead if you do not live with Jesus. What does it mean to live dead? Well, first of all, it means to live. It means joy and life and health and vitality and vibrancy and strength In the Holy Spirit, the profile of one that lives dead is not boring and sanctimonious and stuffy and judgmental and religious and dry. No, to live dead is to live. It is the life of Christ flowing in our mortal bodies. It is to rejoice in the created world. It is to laugh with the Savior. It is to run fast and sing loud. It is to work hard and sleep deeply. It is to live and move and have our being in Him. It is to rise to the challenges with a leap and a whistle. It is to charge the giants giggling. It is freedom from sin and freedom from bondage and freedom from self. It is to embrace the arts. It is to dance. It is to share. It is to inspire. To live dead is to love and embrace and delight. To live dead is raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens and bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens and silver white winters that melt into springs. You are the Christ. You are the source of all that is beautiful. You are the fount of life. You are the reason for being. You are the alpha. You are the omega. You are all that thrills my soul. Jesus, you are seated in heavenly places. You are above all principality and power, might, dominion, every name that is named. All things, Jesus, are under your feet. You are the head over all things. You are the fullness of him who fills all in all. You, Jesus, are the Christ. You made us alive who once were dead in trespasses and sins. You, God, who are rich in mercy because of your great love with which you have loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. In you, Jesus. In Jesus, all the fullness dwells. And with Peter, we live dead by living unto Jesus. 
We declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the destination. Jesus is the fuel. Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the center. Jesus is my all in all. Jesus, you are my Christ. Oh, praise and glory and thanks and honor and power and worth to Jesus forever. Jesus is the Christ. And we are buried with Him in baptism. And we're raised with Him in glory. And Christ is in me, the hope of glory. To live is Christ. I live for Christ. I live by Christ. I live with Christ. I live in Christ. And when I run, I feel the pleasure of Christ. And when I paint, every stroke is for His fame. And when I hit a jump shot, I may not Tebow, but my spirit says, for you, Christ, for you. And when I teach, it's for Christ. And when I study, it's for His glory amongst the nations. And when I drive, and when I dance, and when I work, for Christ, for Christ, for Christ. In my work and in my play, all things everywhere are for Christ. You are the Christ. Well done, Peter. You got it right. Do you have it right today? Do you know the Christ? Do you live for the supremacy of Jesus in all things? Have you laid down your will to take up His? Will you give up your dreams and your carefully planned future to take up His summons? Whatever that means and wherever it takes you. Do you know the Christ? Is Jesus your all and all? If you're living a nominal, lazy Christian life, if you're backslidden, if you are marginal or inward, selfish and carnal, you are a fool and an idiot. Why? Because there's so much life in Christ. Verse 31 of our text, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Is it shocking to you that the devil spoke through an apostle? One of the reasons that Peter got it so wrong was because he had it so right. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus is power and truth and life and strength. Christ is victor. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. Jesus is everything. Jesus is the Christ. And Christ don't suffer. And Christ aren't rejected. And Christ aren't killed. God called Jesus, says Oswald Chambers, to what seemed unmitigated disaster. Poverty, scorn, abuse, rejection, suffering, torture, shame, naked on a cross, death. When God calls a man, writes Bonhoeffer, he bids him come and die. What does it mean to live dead? From our text, let's take three things. Living dead 
means joyfully following Jesus to suffering and to rejection and to death. I don't go to religion to make me happy, wrote C.S. Lewis. I always know a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you really feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. There's a beauty in suffering. There's a strength that comes from loss. Suffering is the privilege of all who follow Jesus. Suffering is God's great gift that we continually refuse to open. It has been granted to you. It has been given to you, the scripture says, not only to believe on his name, but to suffer for his name. All who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. The apostles went out rejoicing, glad they had been found worthy to suffer for his name. We dread suffering. We should welcome it. The most loving gift God could give the American church is a large dollop of suffering. Oh, that you and I would be found worthy, worthy of the sweetness of suffering. You can tell when someone has not suffered. When a man or a woman stands and pontificates on some aspect of God's word, you can tell whether those are memorized truths or if they've been seared into the soul by fire. I asked a dear saint now in heaven about her new pastor. Oh, he's nice enough, she said, but you can tell he's never suffered. In mission to Muslims, every time the gospel breaks out, there is a suffering catalyst. Every time there's been internecine violence where a Muslim majority has killed and attacked and raped a Muslim minority, and this happened in Indonesia in the 60s, in East Pakistan in the 70s, in Iran in the 80s, in Algeria in the 90s, Darfur, Sudan in the last decade. Suffering is part and parcel of the gospel. And to live dead is not self-flagellation. It's to follow Jesus to the cross. It's to endure great sorrow for the joy set before us. It's to be crushed that perfume comes out. It is to suffer many things. David Mathis writes, Suffering is not only the consequence of completing the Great Commission, but it is God's appointed means by which He will show the superior worth of His Son to all peoples. Just as it was fitting that he should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering, Hebrews 2.10. So it is fitting that God save a people from all peoples from eternal suffering through the redemptive suffering of Jesus displayed in the temporal suffering of his missionaries. What is lacking in Jesus' suffering is not their redemptive value, but their personal presentation to the peoples he died to save. For Jesus and the apostles, this primarily meant physical torture. It means the same around the world today. More followers of Jesus have been martyred in the last 100 years than the previous 19 centuries combined. Every 24 hours, 480 believers are martyred for their faith. In the hour that we will spend in church together this morning, somewhere around the world, 20 of your brothers and sisters will die a horrible, violent death because of their faith in Jesus. May they die well. It's ultimately going to be the same right here in America because the American church is not supposed to be exempt from suffering. And the Christianity that you have enjoyed is not the normal, global, or historic, or biblical Christianity. 
God doesn't stand aloof from the pain of His people. God suffers. A God outside of time in eternal agony when His children are bruised. Jesus suffered at cost to the Father. And we learn obedience, the Scripture says, by the things that we suffer. And we fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Our suffering is not salvific. Our suffering doesn't save anyone. There's one Christ. His work on the cross is done. But God has designed that we know Him in the fellowship of His sufferings and that we're like Him in His death. And in some eternal way, when God's people suffer and when they suffer well, it brings others to Jesus. Let us settle it forever then. That to live dead is to suffer many things. Not even knowing what that could mean for us. Not daring to define it. Let us be done forever with the notion of ease and safety and health and wealth and prosperity. Let us reach for the piercing thorns. Let us embrace the rugged cross. Let us count all trials joy. We don't look for suffering. Lord, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine. And if it be thy will, we will drain every last drop. Our God will deliver us. But if not, these knees will only bow to Jesus and these tongues will only lift His praise. We need not imagine our own means. We will not provoke trouble for trouble's sake. We will simply follow Jesus. We'll cling to Him. We'll forsake all others. And the suffering that He ordains will find us and cause Him to be glorified. Secondly, living dead through being rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. In the fourth century, when the Christian faith was being preached in power in Egypt, a young brother sought out the great Macarius. Father, he said, what is the meaning of being dead and buried with Christ? My son answered Macarius, you remember our dear brother who died and was buried a short time since. Go now to his grave and tell him all the unkind things that you ever heard of him. And that we are glad he is dead and thankful to be rid of him for he was such a worry to us and caused us so much discomfort in the church. Go, my son, and say that and hear what he will answer. The young man was surprised and doubted whether he really understood, but Macarius only said, Do as I bid you, my son, and come and tell me what our departed brother says. The young man did as he was commanded, returned. Well, and what did our brother say? asked Macarius. Say, father, he exclaimed. How could he say anything? He's dead. Go now again, my son, and repeat every kind and flattering thing you have ever heard of him. Tell him how much we miss him, how great a saint he was, what noble work he did, how the whole church depended upon him, and come again and tell me what he says. The young man began to see the lesson Macarius would teach him. He went again to the grave and addressed many flattering things to the dead man and then returned to Macarius. He answers nothing, Father. He is dead and buried. You know now, my son, said the old father, what it is to be dead with Christ. Praise and blame equally are nothing to him who is really dead and buried with Jesus. Jesus was rejected by the cultural leaders of his day. Elders, chief priests, scribes rejected Jesus. Cultural architects, futurists, reporters, bloggers, talking heads, magazine editorials, public radio, Twitter, social media. We're ready for their scorn. But that's the easy part about living dead. What about when your Christian friends reject you? What about when your mentors criticize? What about when godly people don't seem to care? What about 
those that don't believe in you? What about those that leave this church? What about those that critique your leadership and transfer to another ministry that's thriving? What do you do when your vision is doubted and your motives questioned and cold water is poured on your dreams? What about when everyone forsakes you? What about when you're betrayed? What about when all men doubt you, Kipling, and the things you gave you life to are twisted by knaves to set a trap for fools? What about when you're slandered by co-workers? What about when you're taken advantage of and abused? What about when God gives you a message that annoys everyone and bruises some? What about when God gives you a method that doesn't work? What about when God's will for you is to have the smallest, most insignificant ministry ever seen? What about when you're wrongly accused? Jesus was. What about when you're misunderstood? Jesus was. What about when you are blamed? And what about living a life that no one ever praises? Well, you know now, my son said the old father, what it is to be dead with Christ. Praise and blame equally are nothing to him who is really dead and buried with Jesus. Third, living dead through being killed and after three days rising again. When he had called the people to himself, verse 34 of our text, with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Church history tells us that Peter died in Rome. According to one legend, persecution was so fierce that Christians were fleeing the city. Peter had gone to Rome to pastor the flock there, but he too was trying to escape this unspeakable suffering. And on the way out of Rome, Peter encountered Jesus who was headed against the flow back into the city. And Peter, surprised, asked him, Quo vadis, Domini? Where are you going, Lord? Jesus answered, I'm going back into the city to die again for the flock that you desert. Peter, ashamed, turned on his heel, returned to Rome, and there, according to tradition, was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus did. Disciples through the centuries have been asking Jesus the same question. Quo vadis, Domini? Where are you going, Lord? And the answer of Jesus has not changed. Jesus is still going to the cross. And if we are his servants, we must take up our cross and follow him there. Quo vadis Domini, where are you going, Lord? Jesus is still going to Libya. Jesus is going to Afghanistan. Jesus is going to Syria. Jesus is going to Oman. Jesus is going to Yemen. Jesus is going to the most resistant and difficult places on this earth. And if as a Christian your desire is to follow Jesus and go where he goes, it is back into the cities and the context of oppression and destruction and war and death. It's to the Pashtun Taliban. It's to the Bedouin Arabs. It is to the Somali pirates. Where are you going, Lord? Kovat is Domini. I am going to my death. I am going to die in an effort to save others. It's never been an unusual thing to die for Jesus. All through the centuries, men and women, young and old, have been laying down their lives for Christ. In Colosseums, in Arabian deserts, in communist jails, and islands of the Pacific. One Christian in India writes David Platt in his book Radical, while being skinned alive, he looked at his persecutors, he said, I thank you for this. Tear off my old garment, for soon I will put on the garment of Christ's righteousness. 
He tells the story of antiquity. Christopher Love being held for his execution. Writes a note to his wife. He says, today they will sever me from my physical head. But they cannot sever me from my spiritual head, Christ. And as Love walked to his execution, he sang of glory while his wife applauded. But it's not just history. This week in Tunisia, maybe you saw the video. They cut the head off of a new believer, held him on the ground, thrust back his head, exposed his neck, and took a minute and a half with a rusty knife to saw that head off and hold it aloft. Joseph's son, the Romanian pastor, being persecuted under the communist regime, and he looks at his antagonist and he says, Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Mid-1800s, a ship took two missionaries to the New Hebrides. They rowed ashore, were caught by cannibals, killed and eaten. The news spread back to England, and a man named John Patton heard the story. God called him to go back and to preach the gospel to this cannibalistic people, and an elder in his church by the name of Dixon was concerned for his pastor's safety and tried to say that he couldn't go. John, you can't go to the New Hebrides. You'll be eaten by cannibals. John Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, your own prospect, your own body, is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. And what does it matter if you are eaten by worms and I by cannibals? For in the day of resurrection, mine will be much more glorious. And here's the point of this. You are going to die. You are going to die. What does it matter how? If you can die for Jesus in some difficult and oppressive place of the earth, why not? You know where carrying crosses takes you, don't you? Ultimately, to life. Death is just a stop along the way. We were born into the shadowlands. This life is a vapor, eternity behind us, 80 brief years if we're lucky, and then immortality beyond. And please understand me, in the light of forever, what's a little death? What's a little trouble? What's a little shame? What's a little rejection? In the light of heaven, what's a little torture? What is rape? What is prison? What is hunger? What is abuse? Horrific as those things are, I do not mitigate their pain, yet they are temporary. And what's a little temporary death in the light of everlasting life? Oh yes, it is death that is momentary, not the other way around. And we must die if we are to rise again. For whoever, verse 35 of our text, desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let us not be the fools who see only the limitations of this shadowy life. Jesus is coming in glory. What's a little shame? What's a little rejection? What's a little death in the now compared to joy forever in the beloved? And as you look over your world, what do you see? Do you see a world that is broken? 
Do you see a culture reeling towards self-destruction? Do you see lies growing stronger than truth? Do you see darkness choking out the light? Do you see 300 million Arab Muslims? Do you see that 6,300 of them die every day? Do you see that there are 6,500 ethno-linguistic peoples that are unreached with the gospel? Do you see that in our world there are 2 billion people that have never met a Christian? That's what I see with my natural eyes. But when I close my eyes of flesh, and when I lift my eyes to Jesus, and when I see the Christ, another vision is unveiled. I see broken men restored. I see battered women rescued. I see mercy triumphing over judgment. I see God enthroned in glory. I see the gospel everywhere proclaimed. I see every tribe and tongue in worship around his throne. I see nations reclaimed. I see Saudis and Libyans and Syrians and Iraqis aflame for Christ. I see glory and justice and peace and wonder forever. And I also see that the path from this reality to God's destiny goes through the valley of the shadow of death. And all who traverse it, all who will live dead, they must suffer, they must be rejected, and they must die.